BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This is... Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. We begin in Southern California's Inland Empire, where the Apple Fire, the state's largest wildfire so far this year, has burned almost 27,000 acres in Riverside and San Bernardino counties. Firefighters now have the blaze 15% contained. Cal Fire says it was caused by diesel soot from the exhaust pipe of a malfunctioning car on Friday. From KVCR, Benjamin Perper starts us off with the outlook for firefighters trying to get a handle on the blaze. The fire is burning in mostly rural area and forest, but it has burned at least one home and caused thousands to evacuate. More than 2,000 fire personnel are on the scene battling the fire, being driven by high temperatures and low humidity. Lisa Cox, fire information officer with the U.S. Forest Service, says the fire is burning in areas that haven't burned recently, though it may soon run into some. That, she says, could help slow the blaze. The most recent fire history that it might kind of run into is a sawtooth fire and the lake fire in 2015. And usually when it does run into another fire print, it does really slow down because, of course, there's less fuel to burn. California Governor Gavin Newsom announced Monday the state will receive a grant from the Federal Emergency Management Agency to help fight the fire. Cal Fire investigators also announced Monday that a malfunctioning diesel vehicle caused the fire, according to several witnesses and physical evidence. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Perper in San Bernardino. 
There are few parts of California that have been hit as hard by the coronavirus pandemic than the Central Valley. The region is a major hub of food production, and a lot of Californians who live there aren't able to shelter in place. Governor Gavin Newsom yesterday raised concerns about how case numbers there keep growing. KQED politics reporter Katie Orr has details. Newsom says while some parts of the state are seeing a stabilization or even declines in COVID-19 numbers, the Central Valley is seeing an increase in positivity rates, hospitalizations, and ICU admissions. Disproportionately, this disease is impacting our diverse communities, disproportionately impacting the Latino community, disproportionately impacting the community in the Central Valley. California's overall COVID-19 positivity rate is 7 percent, but several counties in the Central Valley, which has a large Latino population, are seeing much higher numbers, including Kern County at more than 24 percent. And that's why our targeted interventions disproportionately are focusing on essential workforce, on farm workers, on critical workforce and hospitality, retail sector and the like uh, that is being impacted uh, by this disease. To help the region, California is using the model it first deployed in Imperial County following a massive COVID-19 outbreak there. It includes deploying state and federal personnel to help slow the transmission of the disease through investigations and contact tracing, provide support to hospitals and help manage outbreaks. Newsom has announced $52 million to support those efforts in the Central Valley. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. Pediatricians say the death of a California teenager from COVID-19 last week is a reminder that children aren't immune to the illness. They are, though, less at risk than adults, as CAP Radio's healthcare reporter Sammy Cayola explains. Scientists don't know why children are less likely to contract COVID-19 when they're exposed, but new research is showing young children are less susceptible to infection. Dr. Dean Blumberg is a pediatric disease expert at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Children less than 10, they seem to be about half as likely to get infected when they're exposed to a potential case. For those 10 and older, the risk seems to be about the same as adults. He says older children are more likely to follow rules about face coverings and social distancing. Little ones, not so much. And so I think it's reassuring to know even if they're not following those directions or not able to mask appropriately, that they still have a decreased risk of getting infected and also decreased risk of transmitting to others. Still, pediatric experts warn against children getting together in groups. An outbreak at a summer camp in Georgia this June sickened about three quarters of the campers and staff that were tested. For the California Report, I'm Sammy Kayola in Sacramento. The aggressive response by Customs and Border Protection to ongoing protests across the country has come under intense scrutiny from California lawmakers. Now, KPBS reporter Max Rivlin Nadler tells us that in June, the agency supplied munitions that San Diego law enforcement fired on protesters. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department requested assistance from CBP on five separate occasions during protests between May 31st and June 11th. That's according to a letter prepared by CBP responding to questions from Senator Kamala Harris. The letter was first obtained by The Nation magazine. The requests, which were among the most made by any law enforcement agency in the country during this time period, included assistance regarding less lethal munitions, crowd control, and airborne support. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department said that CBP delivered pepper balls as well as chemical agents after the sheriff had depleted their supply of both. CBP agents were also present at the protests. 
but the sheriff's department said they didn't make any arrests. The sheriff's department says that all aspects of California's SB 54, which limits cooperation between local law enforcement and federal immigration enforcement, were followed during the protests. UCSD professor Tom Wong believes the law never accounted for this type of local policing by Border Patrol. I think things like going into San Diego to assist the county sheriffs when there is a protest was not one of the possibilities or even eventualities that California lawmakers envisioned. Wong has studied interactions between local law enforcement and the Department of Homeland Security in San Diego. And so I think this is gray area for what local law enforcement officials here in San Diego and elsewhere in California may or may not be able to do when it comes to reaching out to Customs and Border Protection, uh, for example, when there's a protest. He says it's very possible that California's lawmakers could revisit laws governing interactions between the two agencies, especially in light of how CBP has been historically used for local law enforcement in San Diego and now elsewhere in the country. For The California Report, I'm Max Nadler in San Diego. Millions of immigrants in California will have to pay hundreds of dollars more to apply for U.S. citizenship and other benefits. That's under a new rule the Trump administration published yesterday. KQED's Farida Javala Romero reports. The rule says applying to become a U.S. citizen will cost nearly $1,200. That's up from 725 For the first time ever, the U.S. will join just three other countries in the world in charging asylum seekers to apply for the protections. At the same time, most fee waivers for low-income immigrants will be eliminated. This new ruling will essentially serve as a paywall. Elena Fairley directs programs at Mission Asset Fund in San Francisco. The nonprofit offers zero-interest loans to apply for citizenship. We believe that it will deter many people from applying for benefits that they're eligible for in the first place. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services depends on application fees to fund most of its operations. Trump administration officials say the changes are needed to cover costs for the agency, which is facing a huge budget shortfall. The changes are set to go into effect October 2nd. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. Fifty years ago tomorrow, Huey P. Newton, co-founder of the Black Panther Party for Liberation, walked out of the Alameda County Courthouse where crowds waited to greet him. Newton had been convicted with murky evidence for his involvement in a shooting where a police officer died, and the California Courts of Appeal reversed the decision. Pendarvis Harshaw is a reporter with KQED Arts and host of the podcast Right Nowish, and he's been reflecting on the significance of Newton's release and why it matters today. Fifty years after him being free from uh, custody, I just looked at the footage of him outside the Alameda County Courthouse and just thought about all the history that transpired right there on those grounds. And even recently, uh, I took a photo of the courthouse in shambles after a night of activism. And I just started the question of, you know, the parallels or the contrast and comparison between what we're seeing right now in the fight for liberation and what happened 50 years ago. For people who aren't familiar with Huey P. Newton's legacy, who was he? Huey P. Newton was uh, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party for Liberation. He, along with Bobby Seale, founded the party in effort to uh, bring about some sort of social change initially with the way that the black community was policed at the time. But that immediately expanded into other social programs. Talk to me about what it took to get Huey P. Newton out of prison, the Free Huey movement, and as, as it was known. 
The effort to get Huey Newton out of prison, from my understanding, came uh, on a number of different levels. Where it was one, it was people power, organizing and having rallies all around the Bay Area and beyond. Two, it was through the media and messaging and also getting uh, big names from Hollywood to support these efforts. And three, it was uh, through legislation and actually looking at the case, the first case that Huey P. Newton had where he was found guilty, but uh, the judge hadn't given the jurors all the information necessary. So bringing that case to the appellate court and having a retrial, and that's where he was granted uh, freedom. Tell us about that image of Huey Newton being released on bail 50 years ago this week here in Alameda County. Can you describe that image for us? Yeah, and reading back through some of the articles and watching the footage uh, that KQED cameras captured, uh, you see Huey P. Newton come out to a crowd of hundreds, if not thousands of people, in front of Alameda County Courthouse. And he gets on top of a car, and he's shirtless, and his arms are big enough to, like, lift the courthouse. He's just swole from working out. And uh, he gets on top of a car, and he says to the people, you have the power, and the power is with the people. Uh, which I think is really meaningful given that, you know, what he was facing. He was facing uh, a case in which uh, an officer of the law had been shot and killed. What is Huey P. Newton's legacy today? Today, Huey P. Newton's legacy is carried uh, not only through the ideas that uh, both he and the Panther Party put forth and a lot of actions that they took that have been incorporated into American society at large, uh, like free breakfast programs at schools, or if we're talking about... uh, diabetes testing. Um, There's instances where you see concepts that the Panthers brought forward being institutionalized into American society. And then uh, in Oakland itself, um, there are numerous murals around town. The Huey P. Newton Foundation is pushing to have a a permanent uh, monument dedicated to the party in front of the courthouse. It's at the heart of Oakland, like literally, if you're speaking geographically, it's where the lake meets downtown. It's also a place where huge decisions are made. We're talking about a courthouse here. And it's also a place where numerous protests have happened uh, before and after Huey P. Newton's release. And so you're just talking about a very fertile ground. And when when I look at it, I see I see so many protests that I've attended or people that I've stood up for, just showed up for, for court cases or even going into that court building to get records on court cases in order to write about it. So I see it as a place where that struggle for liberation is, is, is held constantly. All right. KQED's Penn Darvis Harshaw, looking back at that moment this week. Thank you so much, Penn. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And that's the California Report for this Tuesday, August 4th, a production of KQED Public Radio. If you're a fan of the show, we want to hear from you. We're looking for listeners like you to participate in a short survey so we can better serve you. Help us by visiting kqed.org slash tcrsurvey. That's kqed.org slash tcrsurvey. I'm Lily Jamali. Thank you so much for listening. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Personal Capital, offering remote telefinance services with financial advisors and digital financial planning tools, personalcapital.com. And Water Heaters Only, Specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured. Open 24 hours a day every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. 
Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 